Annette. Your voice has filled this hall with beautiful music as you pled, Teach me, teach me. In many parts of the world, I've looked at other children one by one who were singing this same song. And I prayed then, as I pray now, that there's someone close by who is teaching you to walk in the light. Each of us comes into this world separately, one by one. Now, this is not an accident. I think it's the Lord's way of reminding us of the infinite worth of each soul. There's something very sacred about the time of birth. I remember so clearly the coming forth of each of my own children. My firstborn came after three desperate years of waiting. He was very small, only five pounds. I felt so responsible. It seemed like such a miracle. And there was a great surge of gratitude. Now I had a baby of my very own. With each child came a sharper realization of life's challenges and possibilities. Rocking my babies to sleep, singing them the lullabies which came to my lips, soft, private words carrying my dreams for their future. I have marveled at this miracle of potential that we cradle in our arms, the ultimate of creation, a human child. Now, growth is inevitable. This is the natural phenomenon of life itself. It quickly becomes apparent that the child is engaged in some dynamic process of physical growth over which one has very little control. Shortly, the birth weight is doubled. Turn around, as the song says, and there are three. Turn around, and there are four. Turn around, and there are a young man or woman going out of the door. As young children start to learn, it's like opening a floodgate. There's no stopping, no end to their capacity to grow and to learn. First they imitate, and then they move out on their own. I was always astonished when it seemed like we only had to show our children once some new little skill or some new task, and then they were swept away on their own, pursuing their own star. As we observe the process of natural growth, we become acutely aware of certain eternal principles on which all growth is predicated. First, growth is the expected norm. It's the divine challenge given to each soul as it enters mortality. Our Heavenly Father expects us to use the great gift of life to enjoy and to celebrate this central truth. Because we have life, we can grow and develop and do some things on earth we cannot do anywhere else. Very soon it becomes apparent, and we're very aware of, of another great truth. Only God's children have the capacity to direct their own growth. This means that we can use this time on earth to bring optimum growth and development because we have the power to make choices. It's not enough just to grow. Even the weeds and the biblical tares can do that. It's, it's, it's expected of us that we will shape our growth so that we will not be just like Topsy who just growed, 
but rather we will successfully negotiate the bumps and curves by enlarging upon our talents, by disciplining ourselves so that our mortal experience brings us toward greater and greater mastery of those characteristics which make us worthy of association with the divine. Intelligent observation tells us that growth comes one step at a time. The scriptures say, precept upon precept, line upon line. Just as the baby learns to walk one faltering step at a time and learns to speak one word at a time, we learn to care, to serve, and to love one step at a time. We learn to master everything one concept at a time. The Lord has carefully explained this great truth to us in 2 Nephi chapter 28, verse 30. I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth I will give more. And from them that shall say, We have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. There's a kind of wonder and awe that comes to us as we observe the natural phenomenon of physical growth. You remember the song, I Don't Remember Growing Older, or How Did, I, how did You Grow to Be So Tall? We have a special place in our home where the children record their height on the wall. With the help of a book placed on top of their head, they can tell if they've grown since the last mark was made, and cheers are heard if they've made progress. Now that's natural growth. But what greater joy and satisfaction comes when the change that is wrought has come about by constant personal choice and effort. I'm reminded of the little child who came to her daddy and said, Give me something hard to do. So he thought of some things that she could do, but she would say, No, Daddy, that isn't hard enough. I want something hard to do. He was carrying his briefcase into the house, and he said, Well, carry this. This will be very hard to carry. Well, she grabbed hold, and oh, boy, it was heavy. She said, I think I can. And she struggled and she staggered until she finally got it to the house. We all like to feel that we have met the challenge of something hard to do. Be aware that growth is a process. It is never fully and finally achieved, just a steady picking our way upward along the mountain path. Ultimately, the process requires hope and faith. As Alma so eloquently explained, we have potential for development much like a seed which, when tended and nurtured, will burst into full flower. Once the preparation is completed, full growth is only realized when we have the faith to venture forth. Remember the words of Victor Hugo, Be like the bird who, halting in his flight on limbs so slight, feels it give away beneath him, yet sings, knowing he hath wings. Each new truth becomes ours only as we, like the bird, realize that we're not afraid to venture forth and live by truth, knowing that we too have the capacity to fly.
When a baby is very small, parents often make the choices which direct its path. But slowly, surely as the body and the spirit mature, the matter of choice becomes personal and individual. Someone has observed that you yourself must set flame to the torches which you have brought. As we struggle forward each day, intent upon accepting the Lord's invitation to have life and have it more abundantly, let us remember the great truth that we, as God's children, have the capacity to direct our own growth. May our Heavenly Father strengthen and guide us as we accept His invitation to grow. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, as we begin this conference, I desire publicly to thank the Lord for preserving me once again as he has done so many times before. I extend my love and gratitude to all of you for the many prayers that you have offered in my behalf. I am so grateful to have such loyal, devoted, and able counselors in the First Presidency, President Tanner, President Romney, President Hinckley. I am grateful, too, for President Benson and the members of the Council of Twelve and the other general authorities. These wonderful and faithful brethren lead out so that the Lord's work goes forward. It is His work, and He is at the helm. Even though my strength will not permit me to do all that I would like at the moment, I am blessed, and I will continue to do my part to the best of my ability. I wish I had more strength, but as long as I have any strength, I will continue to bear my testimony to the truth of this great latter-day work and to pray the Lord's blessings and His guidance upon us all. I am so thankful to be here with you in this general conference my feelings are those of gratitude to my Heavenly Father for giving me a part to play in His kingdom as it rolls onward to its divine destiny. It was exactly one year ago that I attended a conference here in the tabernacle. As you may know, I was in the hospital at the time of the October 1981 conference. Last April, I stated that the mission of the Church is threefold. First, to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Secondly, to perfect the saints by preparing them to receive the ordinances of the gospel and by instruction and discipline to gain exaltation. Thirdly, to redeem the dead by performing vicarious ordinances of the gospel for those who have lived on the earth. All three are part of one work, to assist our Father in heaven and his Son, Jesus Christ, in their grand and glorious mission to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life. 
of man. I renew that declaration today. Let us keep these sacred principles in mind and make them an integral part of our lives. That is, to proclaim the gospel, to perfect the saints, and to redeem the dead. Now we are grateful for the growth of the Church throughout the world as we have now reached the five million mark in membership. As I have said before, if we will do our part, there will be major growth, not only in numbers, but in the righteousness of our people. With the announcement just made of the plans to build four more new temples, one in Boise, Idaho, another in Denver, Colorado, another in Taipei, Taiwan, and Guayaquil, Ecuador, there continues the most intensive period of building, temple building in the history of the Church. These four, when completed, will bring to 41 the number of temples operating worldwide. The building of these temples must be accompanied by an even stronger emphasis on genealogical research on the part of all the members of the Church. Furthermore, implicit in the building of temples is the principle of regular temple attendance by the saints. Nothing builds spirituality and our understanding of the priesthood principles more than regular temple attendance. Now, my brothers and sisters, as you read of troubles in so many parts of the world, remember that the Lord knew these problems would come and that even with these problems, he has foreseen the growth of this church and its people. Be of good cheer, for the Lord is guiding his church. For nearly 40 years as a general authority, I have watched him guide this church. I marvel at how he can work to bring to pass his purposes by using us in our weaknesses, but he does. Love one another, brothers and sisters. Have love in your homes and in your hearts. Be peacemakers, even though we must live in a world filled with wars and rumors of wars. Follow the counsel you will receive in this general conference, and I will do my best to do likewise. Trust the Lord in His unfolding purposes, even when His purposes are not always completely clear to us at the moment. Brothers and sisters, be good missionaries. Follow the brethren. Study the new publications of the scriptures. Plant your gardens. Clean up, paint up, fix up your homes and your yards. Live within your means. Be good neighbors. Be good citizens in whatever land you live. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Hold your family home evenings regularly every Monday night. These are my words of counsel to you now, as they have been so many times in the past. Brothers and sisters, pray for the critics of the Church. Love your enemies. Use wisdom and judgment in what you do and say so that we do not give cause 
to others to hold the church or its people in disrepute. This work, which Satan seeks in vain to tear down, is that which God has placed on earth to lift mankind up. When this conference is over, let us return to our homes, to the wards and stakes and branches, with fresh determination to do better and to be better. The Lord watches over you. He will see you through your personal trials and challenges if you'll stay close to him. I can testify to that as one who has known a few challenges himself. The Lord has not promised us freedom from adversity and affliction. Instead, he has given us the avenue of communication known as prayer, whereby we might humble ourselves and seek his help and divine guidance. I have previously said that they who reach down into the depths of life, where in the stillness the voice of God has been heard, have the stabilizing power which carries them poised and serene through the hurricane of difficulties. Now, I have lived more than half of the 152 years the restored church has been upon the earth in this dispensation. I have witnessed its marvelous growth until it now is established in the four corners of the earth. As the prophet Joseph said, our missionaries are going forth to different nations, in Germany, in Palestine, and New Holland, in Australia, and the East Indies, and other places. The standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage and mobs may combine. Armies may assemble and calumny may defame. But the truth of God will go forth boldly nobly and independent, till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, unsounded in every year, till the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. Let us, then, press on confidently in the work of the Lord as we look forward to the glorious years of promise ahead. Through our faithfulness, all that God has promised will be fulfilled. Again, I express my love for the Lord, for my wife and family, for my brethren, and for each of you. I feel your love, and I hope that you feel mine in return. I leave my blessings with you. God, our Heavenly Father, lives Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. He lives. He is our elder brother, our Savior, and our Redeemer. This is my solemn testimony to you, my beloved brothers and sisters, and I share it with you in love and in gratitude and in humility. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Yes. We know who he is, this Christ of whom we speak, and we know that he lives.
He is the light and the life of the world. That is why we sing, The Lord is my light, then why should I fear? As Latter-day Saints gathered tonight in many places, we joyfully bear record to all the world that Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Christ, our Savior, the divine Son of God. But he is more than that. He is our Creator, for he made all things both in heaven and earth, and he is even more yet. He is also our friend. We worship him, the Son of God. We obey him, our Savior and Redeemer. We love him, our gracious friend. But he has work for us to do. He is not satisfied with worship alone. He is not content merely with adoration. He asks us for service, day-to-day service in his Church and Kingdom. He asks us to join with him in a work of salvation, a work of saving our own selves, but others as well. Said he, The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Wherefore you, each one of you, each of us, all of us, are called to aid him in bringing light and eternal joy into our own lives and into the lives of others also. It is the Lord himself who calls, and to what purpose? To help us to become like him. Jesus came to earth many centuries ago as a mortal man. He preached his gospel in Palestine, gathered friends and converts about him, and organized his church with but a handful of members. But as he taught and performed many miracles, multitudes followed him. There were 4,000 at one time and 5,000 at another. Even the children loved him. Both men and women were converted to his teachings, and he welcomed them. Often the women seemed more devoted than the men, and he honored them for it. However, with all his goodness, bitter enemies arose and falsely accused him, calling him a blasphemer because he announced himself as the Son of God. Later they crucified him. And to humiliate him still further, they raised his cross between two thieves, as if to brand him as a criminal like unto them. When his body was tenderly placed in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea, the men who carried him there soon left, but a group of faithful women lingered nearby. On the third day afterward, the Savior arose from the dead, restored to life, resurrected life. And who stood by for this momentous event? The angels, of course. They rolled away the stone and folded up his burial clothes. But was anyone else there? Yes, these same faithful women. They came early that morning, 
they saw the angels who told them, the first of all people, that Jesus had arisen. And to whom did the Lord first appear after his resurrection? It was to one of these same women, a believing, faithful handmaiden. Before anyone else saw him, he made known his victory over death to this devoted and humble woman whose name was Mary. She was the first one on earth to see a resurrected person, the first to greet the risen Lord as he emerged from the tomb, the first of all mankind, this lovely woman. All the hosts of heaven had looked forward to this great event. The ancient prophets had spoken of it and yearned for it. But who was favored to see it first? A woman, a faithful, believing woman, Mary, there in the garden near the tomb where the angels spoke to her. The Savior's atonement was the most important thing that has ever happened. His resurrection was the crowning achievement of it all. And it was shown first to a righteous, believing woman. Then does Christ honor womanhood? His mother was a wonderful woman who nurtured him through infancy, guided him in his childhood, found him in the temple when she thought he was lost, and initiated his first miracle when he became a man. Oh, how he honored his mother. And it was to a woman, a Samaritan woman by Jacob's well, to whom he positively identified himself as the Messiah when he said, I that speak unto thee am he. When Lazarus, his dear friend, passed away and the Lord visited the grieving family, it was to a woman that he made one of the most significant statements of his entire ministry. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. It was a woman who bathed his feet with her tears. A woman anointed his head with costly ointment, a thing so significant in his eyes that he said that her act of adoration would be made known wherever the gospel is preached. It was a woman who received of his mercy when, through her repentance, she was told to go her way and sin no more. It was to a sick and suffering woman that he said, Thy faith hath made thee whole. It was a woman who begged him to heal her daughter, and in her pleading even likened herself to one eating crumbs under the table. His divine approbation distilled upon her, and he said, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. It was out of compassion for a grieving widow that he raised her son from death. It was another woman whom he praised when her might 
was cast into the temple treasury. Devoted women stood with his mother at the foot of the cross on Calvary during his agony. She was his great concern in the midst of his suffering. Which suffering, he said, caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain. In the midst of all that, his concern was for his mother. Then is righteous womanhood near to the heart of the Savior? Are girls who grow up to become good women? He needs all of you in his fold to aid him in his ministry. Suffer the children, suffer the girls, both the younger ones and the older ones. Suffer the women, married and single. Suffer the men and the boys. Suffer those who have gone astray, but repent and come back. Suffer all to come unto him, for righteous and repentant souls are what the kingdom of heaven is made of. You Latter-day Saint girls, younger and older, you Latter-day Saint women, married and single, he asks each of you, all of you, to stand up and be counted for him to be on his side and never cross over to the opposition. It is true that he established his church anciently when he lived in mortality, but uninspired men altered it and destroyed it. To preserve his gospel, he took it from this wicked earth and kept it in heaven for a time, awaiting a better day. As the prophets foretold, in the very hour of God's judgment he would bring it back to earth. He would send an angel as his messenger flying through the midst of heaven. He would raise up a new prophet to receive the angel and through him restore his truth. All of this the Lord has now done. Who was this new prophet? He too was nurtured by a devoted mother throughout his childhood and through serious illness and through persecution that came to him even as a boy. Knowing the importance of womanhood to the gospel plan, the Almighty raised up another great woman to become the wife of that prophet. And these two women, mother and wife, jointly and together, cared for him, fed him, clothed him, nursed him through attacks of violence. And together they mourned at his martyrdom. They defied persecution and death for themselves, never flinched in hardship, and through it all bore constant testimony that Joseph Smith was God's latter-day prophet and that the gospel which he had received from the angels indeed was true. They knew it, these women. They had lived through it hour by hour, day by day for years. They verily knew. Strong men also stood by the prophet, and they were made even stronger by faithful women who at times seemed to possess a greater insight into the purpose of things. Later, as pioneers, they moved west. Women and girls, men and boys, with hand carts and ox teams, 
made the trek to the Rocky Mountains to establish new homes. Why did they do it? God brought them here to fulfill prophecy. It was part of the divine preparation for the second coming of Christ. With their all on the altar, they established God's Zion here in the tops of the mountains, as foretold by the prophet Isaiah. These women knew that their men and boys had been called into a royal priesthood, which was to minister for God in these last days. But they themselves were called to labor for the same cause in specially assigned responsibilities designated for women by the Lord. So men and women alike, both married and single, were called to lay the foundation of God's latter-day work, and they did it. New generations followed, girls and boys of faith and righteousness, boys and girls of loyalty and integrity, girls and boys who would be as true to Christ as their parents were. So the torch was passed to them. Carry on, carry on was the cry. And as these young people caught that torch and held it high, they sang, True to the faith that our parents have cherished, true to the faith for which martyrs have perished. And they meant every word of it. They were true. But now they have passed the torch on to us. What shall we do with it? Shall we do as well as they did? Yes, at least. Shall we shrink or shun the fight? No, never. Shall we defend both truth and right? Yes, by all means. Shall we grasp the iron rod and strive to be found worthy of the kingdom of our God? Yes, we shall, we shall. And will we always remember this Lord whom we are to serve and in whose church we shall labor? He is the same Christ our parents knew, this Christ who cherishes his daughters equally with his sons. It is this Christ who now calls each of us tonight, young and old, married and single, to join his great work, to accept our place in his kingdom and build his church which is the only way to salvation for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. He asks us to put on the whole armor of God, faith, truth, and purity, with which to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. He knows the path to victory, to help us find it, and then to stay on it. He asks us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness just as he did. He asks us to honor chastity as he did. He asks us to be kind as he was. He asks us to be honest as he was. He asks us to shun all evil as he did. Can we ever forget his rejection of Lucifer when the devil tempted him with wealth and power and then appealed to his appetite? What did Jesus say? He declared that we shall not live by bread alone, nor by base desires, nor worldly standards of popularity. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He echoed his earlier command to have no other gods before him, neither gods of pleasure nor of self-gratification. Rather, he said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He asks us to defend virtue, as he did. He asks us to be truthful, as he was. He asks us to be forgiving, as he was. He asks us to be just and fair to all, as he was. He asks us to honor our parents, as he did. He asks us to cherish his gospel, as he did. He asks us to honor the Sabbath day, as he did. He asks us to walk in his paths with the faith that if we do, he will care for us. Consider the lilies of the field and the fowls of the air. Are we not much better than they? He resisted temptation, and so must we. He never forgot to pray, and neither must we. He never forgot his Father in heaven, and neither must we. Our great Redeemer calls us to be loyal as we take up the torch of our destiny. Let us never disappoint him. Though evil abounds in the world and violence grows by the day, he will watch over us if we are true. He has pledged to protect the righteous even if he must send down fire from heaven to do so. If we will stand by him, he will stand by us. And who is he? He is our Savior and our God and our merciful and understanding friend. And who are we? We are his chosen people of modern times. We are the Latter-day Saints, Latter-day Saints for Christ. Then sing all hail to Jesus' name and praise and honor give to him who bled on Calvary's hill and died that we might live. Then hail all hail to Christ our King who saves us by his blood. He marked the way and bids us tread the path that leads to God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One weekend last November, Heidi, a young Mormon mother here in Salt Lake City, left her large and gracious home on a gray morning and drove over to Pioneer State Park and entered the restored home of Mary Fielding Smith. Heidi was costumed in a dress reminiscent of one Mary might have worn, and for the entire day she welcomed young children from a nearby school into this small home where she helped them to learn to dry apples. After the children left, the sun broke through the clouds overhead, illuminating not only the afternoon sky, but casting a reflective glow on the events of the day. That evening, Heidi recorded in her journal, quote, I was overwhelmed by the exceptional beauty I could see from that little adobe house on the hill. I could hardly contain the light that streamed through the wavy glass window into my soul, bringing feelings that were both very warm and very bright. She told about the contrast she felt between the small home 
in which she stood with its meager appointments and her own lovely house on another hill not far away. And she wrote, I hope my home is my family's place of strength, of faith and refuge, a place where truth is confirmed and testimony is strengthened, as Mary's little home had been for her family so long ago. <clears throat> she continued, Despite lifestyle so different, I was overcome by heart so similar. My soul pleads to make the similarities count for my family as they had for hers. The circumstances of Mary Fielding Smith's life are very much different from Heidi's. In the momentous times of the exodus of the saints from Nauvoo, Mary Fielding Smith found herself a widow with small children. To stay in Nauvoo would put her in the position of constant conflict with the dissidents and the mobs. To go would mean leaving her home unsold and alone shouldering the hardships and the unknown challenges of the long and wearisome trek by ox team. To stay would mean giving up association with the saints and the gospel she loved. This she could not and would not do. She wanted her children to grow up strong in the new and everlasting covenant. The bonds of the gospel that led Mary Fielding Smith to face immense hardships and travel west with the saints transcend time and trial, uniting sisters now as then in a oneness of faith. From South America, we receive word of a woman who, when approached by missionaries to accept baptism, said, You don't want me. I am nothing. But the missionaries persisted. She accepted the gospel and she brought, it brought hope and love to her life. It brought learning and growth and progress. In time, she became a Relief Society president, and through her devoted concern, she could give that same hope and love to others. One of the great sisters of Japan, Toshiko, wrote, Deep inside I had a feeling, I had a hope that there is a true church somewhere that testifies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord answered me. Missionaries made me a visit, and I came to know the Book of Mormon. Here in this teaching exists the truth I have been looking for. My heart had affinity for the gospel as desert sands have for water. From Africa, where the first all-black Relief Society was founded in 1978, comes this word. I have learned to look at life in a very different way. I, as a young mother, have learned how to bring my children up in a Christ-like way. I have learned to make my home a pleasant place and also a place where the gospel is believed and lived. Example after example come from women in many places, from women of differing circumstances in life, women alone, women with children, women old, women young, women new to the church, women in sorrow, women in despair, women happy. They form a mosaic of many lives with differing circumstances, individual talents and with gifts wonderfully varied. The details of each life are so numerous that we begin to see in them the great diversity among us and with it great strength and enrichment. And from varied experiences comes one great unifying truth, echoing and re-echoing. I know God lives and loves me. His teachings make me strong and sustain my soul. This testimony gives us hearts so similar that, as Paul said, we, being many, are one in Christ. Being many with differing gifts, yet having hearts so similar, hearts testifying of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
that his teachings are true, his way of life, a way of truth, of love, of light. An examination of the many individual lives of those who would be his disciples testified that nothing about the gospel is designed to make reason stare, as Eliza R. Snow observed so many years ago. The gospel, correctly understood, embraces all that is virtuous, lovely, of good report, and praiseworthy. The gospel is heaven-sent. It is the light by which we find our way through the darkness and through the difficult times. The light of truth discloses our eternal nature. If we work long enough and hard enough and pray diligently enough, the excellence that is our divine potential is possible to each one of us. The uniqueness of each human being is a condition of God's creation, even though the differences sometimes cause us to wonder. One beautiful Oriental sister came to the United States, and for the first time in her life, she encountered blonde-haired, blue-eyed persons. The blue eyes seemed so unusual to her that she later confided that, although she now thinks them lovely, she had wondered at first if people could really see out of them. <laughs> Color, culture, talents, tastes, diversities abound, and through them come much of the fullness and beauty we experience in life. To the sister from the Orient, it was the color of eyes that seemed strange at first. But for all of us, there are differences we can come to appreciate more fully. Learning to value variety in others, we can also see and appreciate our own uniqueness more clearly. When we can respect not only the differences in others, but also their accomplishments, we begin to experience some of the joy the Lord intended. There is so much more of happiness to be had when we can rejoice in another's successes and not just in our own. Being happy in the achievements of brothers and sisters and associates requires a feeling of security and the recognition of our own great potential. The gospel brings us this kind of confidence within reach. When we are filled with love for the Lord, with all of our hearts and souls and minds, the result is that we can feel and understand and be secure in his love. We will keep his commandments. We do love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the way he planned it to be for us, coming together in love and faith with hearts so similar. How do we become of one heart? We become so first by knowing that we are daughters of God, second by knowing and witnessing that he lives and that his great mission was to make it possible for us to attain not only salvation but exaltation. And third, by diligently, one step at a time, working at the task of perfecting ourselves. And fourth, by praying often for personal guidance, for a caring heart, one that understands and is aware of others. And fifth, by seeking divine help in living the teachings and judging not. We cannot walk in another's path. We cannot know another's challenges, and so we should not judge. And sixth, by living positively and giving all that we have to extend the work of the Lord, for giving the truth of the gospel to another is one of the greatest gifts we can give. And seventh, by obtaining understanding and the strength to be actively engaged in those good things which will make the world a better place for our having been here. Eighth, 
by paying the price of excellence in all we undertake to do. Ninth, by willingly accepting the concept of unselfishness and translating it into the actions of our times and seasons. These are the things that make us similar of heart as we take personal responsibility for our own lives, whatever the circumstances. These principles can be embraced by all, the poor and the rich, single and the married, young and the grandmothers. There are no exceptions and no specifications about looks or marital status or opportunities or responsibilities. There are no arbitrary limitations. The Lord really cares about the feelings of love in our hearts and our souls, about diligence in seeking wisdom. He wants us to love and care and do as he did. He wants us to be righteous as he was. He wants us to develop the divine within us. We can be good women, elect women, and even holy women, though we are women of great diversity. We can be women of God bound together in a great sisterhood of faith and testimony. And like Heidi, we can pray for strength and faith and the ability to make our homes places of refuge where the light of heaven, like the golden sunlight of that gray November day, will stream into our lives no matter where we are. That we, being many, will be one in Christ, having hearts so similar, is my humble prayer in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our exampler and redeemer. Amen. Part of our precious legacy to be remembered and renewed is that though deepening trials throng our way, we know that our afflictions can be consecrated to our good. Good can come from evil. Trauma can enliven the heart and enrich the soul. Clouds do have silver linings, and the leaf will burst again on the dry branch. Weeping may endure for the night, sang the psalmist, but joy cometh in the morning. My dear sisters, the daily work of the Lord involves changing hopeless to hopeful for all of us. And it is for us to find at last that in the midst of winter, we have within us an invincible summer in a world filled with adversity, we can reach for joy. My heart responds to you, to you who are young women, so beautiful and so refreshing, to you wise and wonderful ones who've lived a little longer and suffered some, to you with many dreams and to you whose dreams have been dashed. And to some of you who've given away for the time to the temptings that are unleashed upon all of us in these latter days. And to you stricken ill. And to all whose faith has faltered and whose tears have washed the cheeks of your baby or the damp in the pillow at night. To all of you, I express my love and my compassion. And I give you my blessed witness that our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ live and sustain us. And the Comforter witnesses within us, even now, 
that our personal joy can be full. But first, the testing. The bitter so that we can appreciate the sweet. First the trial, and then the witness of our faith. Now it's our understanding that in the world before this one, we all heard the plan of life presented by the gods. We had our agency, and each one of us voting to come down to earth to be proven herewith. Now to me that means something like, I will go down and I will take up my life no matter what comes. I will go down and suffer a learning disability or watch the man I love marry someone else. Or I will endure a frustrating relationship. Or I'll take up my life as the only Latter-day Saint in my high school or the only Latter-day Saint in my family. Or I'll live my life working hard all my years without any apparent success. But I will go down to earth to be proven and to learn. Trials come in different ways at different stages of life. You've no doubt heard about the young girl who complained to her teenage brother about the terrible blows that life had dealt her. And she said, it just isn't fair. You got the curly hair and the straight nose. And he said, well, you got the curly nose and the straight hair. <laughs> Brothers are so wonderful. But whatever life offers, it is to be lived, it is to be learned from, and we need to get on with it and reach for joy. One certainty of life is that each of us will meet some mighty tests. This is part of the plan. Another thing that we can count on is that neither here nor hereafter are we suddenly going to emerge with qualities we haven't developed or a pattern of living for which we've not prepared ourselves. Adversity is an important part of the preparation for at least three good reasons. One, God knows whom he can trust and who, like Job, will stand firm and love him unconditionally. And second, adversity well handled can increase our understanding and compassion, and we will be more effective in helping others when we've had a few challenges of our own. We just may need to be an answer to somebody else's prayer. And third, we draw closer to our Heavenly Father when we are in deep need. Our prayers of thanksgiving and joy, of course, should be part and are a part of our worship. But I guess there isn't anybody here who won't admit that we, we pray more fervently than ever before when we're under the press of problems. Attitude in adversity turns hopeless to hopeful. It's a matter of the lemon and the lemonade, after all. In adversity, we can complain bitterly, why me, why now, and wallow in self-pity, thus denouncing God. Or we can find our way by asking that all-important question, which of my Heavenly Father's principles will help me now? And when we find that appropriate principle, the next step is to live that law irrevocably decreed upon which the particular blessing that we need is predicated. Now, sisters, 
God's plan is a plan of ultimate joy for each of us. His principles suffice in any situation. But each one of us, young and old, must rise to her challenges in her own way. Each one of us must reach for our own joy. Let me tell you about some sisters. Each of you could share a story with us if you had a turn. But for 30 years and more, Sister Louise Lake, who has now passed away, lived alone, trapped in a wheelchair. A parade of problems plagued her constantly. But she made it beautifully prepared to meet our Heavenly Father. And this is how she did it. Each morning over the years, she practiced an exercise in joy, a kind of fervent blessing counting session upon awakening. Imagine an exercise in joy under those circumstances. She didn't curse God and die. She gave thanks and lived anyway, touching many of us in remarkable ways because of what she had learned about trouble. Sister LaRue Longden, a former counselor in the general presidency of the young women, was a ward president at the time of the serious illness of their little daughter. She and Brother Longden were kneeling in fervent prayer by the side of their bed when word came that the little girl had passed away. They were heartbroken, but after the funeral, all the leaders and the young women held flowers and formed an aisle while she, their president, had to walk past them. And during this time of intense emotion, she suddenly realized that they were watching her. I had to live what I'd been teaching, Sister Longden said. I had to be an example of what I really believed. So she lifted her chin and smiled her famous smile upon them. A 14-year-old girl I know has just completed a bout with cancer. We hope it's complete. She knows now that she'll never be able to bear children. She told me that the theme for the young women, which is the Lord is the strength of my life, has helped her meet her test. And she's determined to become the very best teacher of children that Heavenly Father ever had. Find the principal sisters. Live it. Reach for joy. A special friend of mine was left with the burden of being a single parent, not by her choice. One day she was more particularly desperate for help. She was so in need of comfort and direction, and yet she felt so alone. Her parents were away on a mission. The bishop was busy. Her home teacher was out of town. And finally, tear-weary, she turned to the scriptures and read the beloved words, Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Here she found her answer. She prayed and she was helped. It was wonderful. It worked. Well, today we women of all ages can draw upon the powers of heaven. We can seek strength through the priesthood, find solace and direction in our patriarchal blessing, be guided by studying the scriptures. Life may not always be exactly what we had in mind, but we are not alone. This special promise is recorded in Mosiah. 
Lift up your heads and be of comfort, and I will ease the burden upon your shoulders that even you cannot feel them upon your backs, even while you're in bondage. And this I will do that ye may stand as witnesses for me hereafter, that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord God, do visit his people in their afflictions. Isn't that beautiful? I know that our Heavenly Father keeps his promises. I, like you, have been sorely tried in a variety of ways. But this kind of seasoning teaches us that every burden on the back can become a gift in the hand. This I firmly believe. And I earnestly pray that in time of trial that we may stand firm, we sisters, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that we may stand firm as witnesses of Christ and of peace in the plan of life and thus reach for our joy. We love you. We pray for you. We find comfort in your example. And I pray this day that we may help each other make it through our times of trial and while we reach for our joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.